Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma. Today we're doing Sutta study. We're studying studying the Dvedavitaka Sutta, Majimanikaya number 19, if you're interested. So I think this sutta is, um, stands out in a few ways. First of all, it provides um, a good sort of um, practical framework based on the three kinds of thought, which we'll get into. Um, second, it has a couple of interesting points that it makes quite well and third it has a two sets of similes or they call them similes or allegories similes I think <coughs> similes are useful uh, the, the stories that the Buddha tells he says imagine such a person or such a situation and it's a good way to put things into some kind of perspective because of how the mind works our mind is good at relating things to other things right if you see an apple even though you've never seen it again you know it's an apple we're, we're, we're very quick this is sanya we're good at recognizing things and we can do this with situations we can say oh this is like that so if you bring up a situation that people are familiar with um, and you relate it to something that they're unfamiliar with it helps them understand it better so similes are quite useful stories are also quite memorable so it's a good way to remember the concepts based on the stories so it starts off the Buddha talking about before he was enlightened. He's giving us a glimpse into his um, practice and the challenges he faced trying to become free from suffering. And so he tells us that this is when he came up for this with this division of three kinds of thought. There's uh, thoughts of sensuality, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. Those are the three kinds of wrong thought that we now recognize as micca vitaka or micca sankapa. No? I think. Anyway, it's the three kinds of wrong vitaka, three kinds of wrong thought. So kama vitaka is simple. That's the five senses relating to anything you want anything you like you know beautiful sights flowers uh, attractive body the, the human body and body parts that are attractive bodily shapes anything that you see that attracts you smells perfumes and 
food smells, that kind of thing. Uh, tastes, feelings, soft feelings, warm feelings, comfortable feelings. I missed sounds, didn't I? No? Beautiful sounds, music, laughter, voices. The voice of a, someone that you're attracted to. So he does something useful that I often talk about. It's not really important that we understand these as wrong right away. He's going to do that, but it's important to understand how he does that. That he doesn't start by um, thinking in the mind, this is right and this is wrong. And it's easy to miss this. When you read a lot of the Buddhist teachings, because we're so accustomed to gaining knowledge through thinking, uh, we read it to mean that one thinks about these things, like you're doing now as we talk about them. It's going through your mind that, yes, this is this is bad, isn't it, right? Maybe you've heard other people talk about it, or logically you can think that it's bad. It's bad to want things, bad to be greedy. But most likely you're in the position of thinking, I'm not sure if this is wrong. You know, some of these things actually make me quite happy. And certainly, unless you're uh, an anagami, you still know that inside you have the attachment and the desire for these, for many things, many objects of the sense. But nonetheless, this is one type of of thought. Another type is uh thoughts of ill will, so wanting to inflict pain on others, wanting to hurt others. And well, no, most, mostly, uh, if you're at all interested in meditation, you're pretty clear that this is a bad thing. You know, it's, there are people who are quite intent upon hurting others, but the most part we have a sense as Buddhists and this is it's not hard to come to the realization because anger is painful so it's easier to it's much more blamed in the world much easier to see the blame in it the good thing about it is it's therefore quick to change um, but nonetheless we give in to this and this is how it should be described you actually want to hurt people sometimes it's not that we don't know what we're doing it's not that we don't have a desire it's actually when you get angry at someone there actually arises the desire to hurt them the desire to inflict pain is really what it is why we say nasty things, our, our intention really is to hurt, is to inflict pain on others. Of course, we do come up with all sorts of good reasons for it. Well, they deserve it, or well, they did it to me. Or well, it'll teach them a lesson. 
or maybe just while it'll get rid of them I won't have to deal with them anymore if I make them very angry or hurt them enough kill them maybe if I keep killing the mosquitoes then mosquitoes will never bother me And in fact, it's the opposite, right? The more you, the more angry you get at something or someone, the more stressful it is to be around them or people or beings like them. The more you hate mosquitoes and the more you are intent upon destroying the mosquitoes, uh, the more you, the more painful it's going to be to be around mosquitoes or people. I mean, better around things, sight, sound, smells, tastes, feelings that are unpleasant. The more you hate them and try to get rid of them, the more painful they are. Uh, the third type of thought is thoughts of cruelty. So it's distinguished in that it relates, it's distinguished from the, the second one in, in that it relates more to um, not wanting to help others you know, someone is in suffering someone is suffering and the desire for them to to stay suffering the, the uh, feeling good about it or the uh, desire not to help them so if someone someone needs your help not wanting to help them that's the idea there I don't really understand the clear distinction. I, mean, I think if someone asks you for, I guess it's if someone asks you for something, and then you don't give it to them, right? Someone comes and wants us to teach them meditation, and we don't help them. That's uh, the third type. But if someone asks you not to do something, and, or if you know that something's going to hurt someone and then you do it, well, that's the second type. Subtle difference. But the third type is, is, um, relates to the Buddha, right? The Buddha was asked to teach, and we say it's, it's his great compassion that caused him to, to not shake his head and turn away from the invitation to teach. People needed help and he wanted to help them. He, he, he didn't shun them. He wasn't cruel in turning them away. So this is one set. I mean all of these, there's a general sense from Buddhists that they're bad so we can put them in one category and then we can set up another category. The other category is their opposites, right? So the opposite of Sensual, sensual thoughts are thoughts of renunciation, uh, thoughts of of not clinging. So seeing some something beautiful and having dispassion about it, I mean, not being attached to it. I mean that's a good thing if you see something as unattractive or non-attractive. I guess. Now it's not quite clear exactly how you do that, right? When you think about, well, but if I like it, how do I get to the point where I stop liking it? Because that's what it is, really. We we like things. We say, I like this, I like that. But what we really mean is, 
we're addicted to that. We have an addiction whereby we uh, we crave it, and we're 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 prisoners to our desires, forced into doing all sorts of things. And it wouldn't be a problem if I didn't desire it, but I do. And so a thought of non-desire, a thought of or a reflection or a, a reception of an object without the desire uh, would, would solve a lot of problems, right? It would, if you think in a, in a worldly sense, stop people from stealing from others or it would stop things like rape and stop us from raping the environment as well. Stop uh, colonialism and so on and so on. All the many problems in the world, many so many of them would be stopped if we were to just give up our desires. If we just didn't didn't need these things. So much stress in our lives. What would we need to survive? We wouldn't need big houses and fancy cars. We wouldn't need so much money. Don't think we need iPhones or iPads. Uh, so that's the opposite. Um, the, the opposite of the other two are, are metta and karuna, respectively. So metta is friendliness, the desire for others to be happy, or the not desire but the inclination. When uh, when someone asks you for something, or you you. you, you you have an opportunity to bring happiness to someone. You give them something that makes them happy. You do something that makes them happy. That's, that's metta, or the inclination for people to be happy. Speaking in such a way to make them happy, to bring them happiness. And karuna is when someone is suffering, the inclination to free them from suffering. Someone needs your help to get out of suffering. You do what you can to free them from it. Again, they're, they're, they seem very much related to me in a Buddhist sense, right? Because true happiness is freedom from suffering. I leave it to the scholars to pull these two apart, but they seem to be very much two sides of the same coin to me. And so basically I think we have the liking and the disliking, these two sides, the, the greed side and the anger side. And so their opposites are you know, lack of greed and lack of anger, lack of aversion. Thoughts basically of, of uh, goodness, wholesome thoughts. Thoughts that are devoid of these sort of unwholesomeness. But the Bodhisattva was looking at all sorts of different states of mind, right? So he had wholesome thoughts. He knew that when I want to help other people or um, when I want to be friendly, I want to help them out of suffering or help them find happiness, well that's that's a good thing. And when I want to harm others, well that's a bad thing. But the way the text explains it is important. 
it says uh, when th when these each of these different types of thoughts arose in me, he says I understood. He uses the word pajanati, which is an important word. He didn't think to himself. He didn't use logic or rationale. He understood, like he saw. This is bad for me. This is bad for other people. This gets in the way of seeing clearly. Causes difficulties. It leads me away from freedom from suffering. He understood this. Uh, about the first three, and, and he understood the opposite about the other three. That... Um, some thoughts clearly led to his affliction and some thoughts clearly led to his benefit and the same for others anger is not something that arises for our benefit it, it makes us burn up and it makes us stressed and so on it certainly doesn't arise for other people's benefit greed is the same but the point is that he saw these things and so we don't have to actually have a clear idea of which states of mind go in which category, which are good and which are bad. The whole point of meditation is to come and see this for ourselves, is to clearly see through observation. And that's an important aspect of meditation, that we're not going into it knowing what is good and what is bad, or, or having preset uh, ideas. And our method of practice is not based on preset ideas. We observe things objectively, try to see them for what they are. And you'll be able to see for yourself what is good for you and what is bad. So how does this, a little, a little word, word on how this works. So rather than, um, rather than observing the emotion itself and saying, hey, this is bad or this is good, it works, it works based on these things being reactions to experience. So uh, take, for example, our basic exercise when you watch the stomach rising and falling. As you observe that and observe all the associated states, uh, there might arise a liking of it, a liking of something, or there might arise a disliking of it. Now, as you observe this, you observe the experience, and then you observe the liking, and then you observe the results of the liking, you get a very clear sense of what it means to like something, and what are the consequences of being a Attra attracted to something you see the object that you're attracted to quite clearly you see the attraction to it maybe you, you there arises a pleasant feeling maybe the rising and falling is going very smooth and then you like it and you get to see what the result of that is because well the rising and falling of the stomach is not a it's not a machine it's not going to be smooth all the time and so you're thrown into disappointment and, and stress 
when that goes away and you're constantly or or you see that you've developed this um, attraction and this sort of addiction to it being in that way and then it's not like that I mean, it's a very simple mechanism. The, the reality isn't a complicated thing, but it isn't a complicated system. But we're so blind, we're so lost that we don't have a clear sense of how it works. Meditation is just slowing down and taking the time to figure out how it works. You know, we talk about impermanent suffering and non-self. All that means is that these things aren't going to be amenable to your likes and dislikes. Suppose you dislike something. You, you dislike it and somehow you think, well, that's going to be to my benefit. Disliking that, that's a good thing. Usually because then we think we can get rid of it. Okay, don't like it. i got to get rid of it. Uh, and then it comes back. And you start to notice how the disliking is is actually its habit forming. Something arises and you dislike it. The next time it comes back, you dislike it even more. You see that disliking is stressful. Disliking is uncomfortable. And importantly about both of these is you start to see how they're not really related to the actual experience. I see that experiences are innocuous in, in one sense because they're not um, positive or negative. There's nothing intrinsically good about seeing or hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, even thinking. And there's nothing bad about it. We give quality of good and bad to things. And totally unrelated to the experience right? We get frustrated over, over things we, our, our reaction to pain is a good one you know, we, get, we, we, we overreact terribly to pain Rather than simply experiencing it as a feeling and We have this knee-jerk, immediate reaction of disliking it So he goes through this and he talks about how when you realize this, this is when it changes. This is when your mind starts to incline in one direction. Your mind starts to um, disincline towards those things that cause you stress and suffering. That's really how the meditation works. We talk a lot about letting go in Buddhism, but it's a bit misleading because you don't ever really let go. Um, not actively, right? Meditation isn't the practice of letting go. The letting go comes from seeing that it's not worth clinging. The things that I'm clinging to are not worth it. Clinging is not worth it. Clinging good, bad, giving value judgment to things only causes stress and suffering. You see that. It's not intellectual. It's not something you can think away and say, yes, these are bad, go away. It's more like these are these, this is this, it is what it is Oh, okay, that's bad It comes comes as a result of the practice It's not our practice to denounce or to hate or to shun our, our reactions But to observe them and to understand them he may, And then he makes one of his good points that I think is 
is important to read to repeat. He says, whatever you frequently uh, think and ponder upon, those are the Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. Bahulam anuvitaketi anuvicharati. So what you what you uh, incline your mind towards, what you consider. Uh, those are bad, bad descriptions. So the difference between these two is what you set your mind upon, and then what you uh, then muck around in with your mind. Basically, what you become absorbed in, whatever your mind inclines towards. Now, whatever you think about frequently, ponder upon, mull in your mind, whatever obsesses your mind, that becomes your inclination. This is a statement that's, I think, quite important, and it may seem may seem pretty simple, but it has an important meaning. What it means is that thoughts and inclinations are habit-forming. And we don't get this, I think, that, as I said, when you dislike something, it becomes a habit to dislike it. It becomes worse and worse. It's not static. We talk about our likes and our dislikes, but they're not as though they're static things. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like carrots, or I like turtles or something. But uh, the truth is that the more you like something, the more you become attached to it. You know, this is why throughout our lives we experience disappointment because we build up desires and needs and so on. And uh, we, we set ourselves up for stress when, we, when, when they're taken away from us. I mean, some of us do. Sometimes it's possible to go through life not losing great, um, great things that you hold dear. But regardless, throughout, throughout life we have stresses and disappointments and worries about losing the things that we hold dear and so on. Uh, because we build up these habits, we, we change. We're always changing. We're changing right now. Listening to me, you're changing. If you don't like what I'm saying, you're building up this habit of disliking. If you like what I'm saying, maybe you're building up a habit of liking. Maybe you won't like the next thing I say, something else that I say, or what someone else says, and then you get upset about it. And then he gives his first set of similes that I think is interesting as well. So the first set of similes is about a cow herd. And as I said, it's, they're useful because they're familiar. For most of us, I think cow herding isn't, isn't all that familiar, but it is from stories and movies, I think. Most of us have a sense of what it means to herd cows, even if we've never seen or touched a cow before, been near a real cow before. I grew up around farm animals. Uh, and so the, the, the point here is that a, a cow herd in India, I guess, in this time, back when there were electric fences, back before there were electric fences, you would have to guard your cows. Uh, so you'd want to take them out to the commons, maybe, where the open fields where you c they could eat 
all the grass they wanted because cows eat a lot of grass uh, but you had to be careful because if you didn't keep track of them they would get into other people's crops right? it would be the farmer next door who had his crops or her crops growing and if your cows got into them well maybe the farmer would just shoot them with a bow or something but most likely they'd get the king involved or the the authorities involved and some soldiers would come and rough you up and make you pay a fine or that or even put you in jail Buddha says you could be flogged imprisoned fined or blamed yeah blamed isn't probably so bad but still bad So what do you have to do? Well, you don't tie your cows up and stop them from moving. You don't tie the mind down and stop it from thinking. But you you have a stick. And when the cows get out of line, you give them a whack back. And so you're constantly, don't go left, don't go right, constantly tapping them. And that's a really a good um, analogy for meditation it, it, it works a little bit better I think for samatha meditation but in vipassana it's, it, it's applicable as well in the practice of mindfulness you know, with samatha you're just trying to stop yourself from thinking certain things but in insight meditation you're trying to understand them but it still involves a little bit of whacking you know your mind wants to follow a thought wants to react to it wants to proliferate and make more of it than it actually is and you pull it back to reality no that's just seeing seeing is just seeing it's like keeping on a straight and narrow line it's actually quite applicable as your mind starts to like something starts to dislike something starts to react to anything catch it liking liking disliking disliking or best Seeing, seeing, keep it on track. And then he says, but later on, eventually all the crops get taken in, and then you don't have to worry. Right? Once there are no crops, you don't have to guard them so much. You guard them, the coward would just guard the cows by sitting at a tree and, and just watching them with one eye, you know sit comfortably don't have to keep them in line don't need a guard uh, a sheep dog or a cow herd dog and same with the mind so what he's trying to say here is that eventually your mind settles down and this is what we're aiming for you you begin by acting like the like the mind is going to or being clear that the mind is going to fall into suffering if you're not mindful and eventually you get to the point where all you have to do is seeing seeing hearing hearing there's no more liking or disliking we have to think of meditation as this like, like tapping the cows keeping them in line until eventually they stay in line out of habit and themselves and then he describes his path which is a fairly standard uh, 
description of how the Buddha became enlightened he, he says tireless energy was aroused in me very important we have energy in our practice unremitting mindfulness was established my body was tranquil and untroubled my mind concentrated and unified and it's at that point that he went into all the samatha jhanas and magical powers remembering his past life past lives and so on and then finally becoming free from suffering so he went the long route the full route and basically what it's about this sutta is about is the right path and the wrong path you know and that's really the thing is that much of our path as human beings is is wrong And it's wrong in a in a, a subtle sense because it's attractive. You know, we think it's right to like things, to dislike things. We get attracted to that. We're 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 we're, we're intent upon ambition to get what we want and to beat down our enemies, our our um, competition, that kind of thing. To hurt others, to help ourselves, to help others, and so on. We're intent upon these things. But one path is clearly wrong, the path of, of hurting others. There, there are certain aspects of our life that are, you know, inherently wrong. They're they appear to be doing us some good and they have, they have a sense you know there's a sense in our mind that this is somehow makes some sense and is of some benefit and use but upon inspection and through the practice of meditation we come to see that they're wrong and so the buddha describes this in his second set of similes or his second simile it's not a set He says, suppose there was a there was a low-lying marsh, and a large herd of deer lived in this marsh. So deer like marshes, I think. I guess I'm not sure why. I'm not even really sure if that's true, but but I need water. So uh, it's fertile area, right? Place with water where the deer like to live. And they were living quite quite comfortably and pleasantly, but then then there came along this man, this human. As humans do, he thought only about how he could benefit himself, you know, looking at each of the deer like they were commodity. And so he closed off the path, you know, the deer had a path that they would go and come from the, the water and, and maybe the apple trees or the fruit trees where they would get their food <laughs> mango trees maybe closed it off with branches and, and thorns or maybe 
and he opened up another path. He 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 created a new path, and he set up a decoy and a dummy to attract them down that path. Um, I'm, I'm not clear what the difference between a decoy and a dummy are. A decoy is something that attracts animals. Uh, a dummy? I don't know. Doesn't matter. They. It's more instructive when we talk about what these things actually mean. And so as a result of going down that path, of course, he was able to trap them and shoot them and kill them and herd them all into a place where they were helpless, right? Maybe a cave or a, a, a ravine where he could kill the deer at his leisure. But then, lo and behold, there comes another human being. And this other human being desires the good, uh, the welfare and protection of the animals, right? Not all human beings are out to kill and eat and murder and torture our fellow living beings. It's the wonderful thing about humanity. Where we have such horrible, horrible tendencies, but we also have such wonderful tendencies, more so than most other animals, right? Some people are quick to vilify humans as being cruel, more cruel than animals. I don't know if that's even true, but I think it is true. We're capable of greater cruelty, but we're also capable of greater love and uh, compassion. Because our minds are more advanced, to you know, not to pump us up or anything, but, but clearly the mind of a human being is far beyond but that's a neutral observation right it's far beyond any animal but as a result we can be far more cruel so this man comes and he sees what's going on here and he opens up the good path and he closes off the false path and he removes the decoy and destroys the dummy and the large herd is able to go back to where they, to the deep forest where they're safe and sound and happy. And they're able to come to growth, increase and fulfillment. So he's setting this up to give the, the imagery of two different paths. And I'm being clear that, hey, the way we're going and our whole culture, this whole culture that we've developed around a specific way of looking at the world and, and how to find happiness in it is wrong. It's false. And why do we follow it? We follow it because of the decoy and the dummy. And the decoy, the Buddha says, is, is our desire. So a decoy is something that attracts animals. And we've got all these decoys that are set up. Flashy images sounds we get distracted by these things thinking hey that's where happiness is and we follow after them we've been deluded we've we've tricked ourselves into thinking that this is happiness but the buddha says this man who this human being who desired the ruin of the deer this is mara so there there's this idea in buddhism that there are forces at work that are causing us to go down the wrong path. 
being tricked. We do a good job tricking each other, right? Think of the advertising industry. We want to convince each other that we need this thing, that this will make us happy. Look, these people are happy and they've got this thing. And boy, does it make them happy, so it must make us happy. We're good at that. Or, our, our, you know, it starts when we're in, in, in public school. Your friend gets a new toy and shows it off and feels really good because they've got it and you don't and it makes them feel proud of themselves like they did something right because everyone's now looking at them and, and wanting their toy so we want it and we got a habit because we think wow they're so happy and they've got because the, they've got that toy you know if you wanted to analyze how the how these things evolve you'd be able to see all of these mechanisms in in uh, at work we hurt other people because it seems to work right someone's talking too much you yell at them to be quiet or maybe you hit them when you're a little kid little kids hitting each other parents hitting their children it seems to work right it seems to work and so we get this false idea the false path appears to work seems to work you like something you get it you got it done it worked now I'm happy this is the decoy the decoy and then there's the dummy I don't, I, again, I don't get where the simile differentiates, differentiates these two. But probably if I was wiser, I could figure it out. But the dummy in this case is ignorance, the Buddha said. And that's clear. Because uh, in order to have, in order to want something, you have to have ignorance. It's our ignorance that leads us to think, hey, this is going to make me happy. If only I can kill this person, then I'll be happy, or make them go away. If only I can get what I want, if only I can get this beautiful sight or sound and acquire it and have it. This thing that looks so beautiful, this human being who is so attractive, if only I can have them for my own, then I'll be happy. Unfortunate truth is that it's ignorance, that it's ignorance to believe any of this. It's not actually true. And this other person who comes along, well, that's the Buddha. And the Buddha closes off the false path. He gives us a way to see, to differentiate. He gives us a way to close it off. Or he closes it off for us by leading us by his teaching you know the Buddha's teaching closes off the wrong path for us uh, points out that it's the wrong path but it's that knowledge when he destroys the decoy and destroys the dummy 
He gives us knowledge and He provides us a means by which we can gain true knowledge through meditation. When the Buddha encourages us to meditate, it's usually because we've started to question. We don't know why, we don't know what we're doing wrong, but we must be doing something wrong because we're still not happy. And so the Buddha shows us, he gives us meditation practice and we see that the decoy is just a decoy and the dummy is just a dummy and the wrong path is the wrong path. And as he gives us the wrong path, the right path, mindfulness and so on, we're able to find peace, happiness and freedom from suffering. So it's a useful, I mean that's, I think the Buddha uses this simile elsewhere. And I think the real lesson we take away is that there are these two different paths and they're very, very different. And it's important for us to be clear about that because they both sound attractive, right? I mean it is, it is attractive to think about liking and disliking things that seems important somehow because of how we've come to understand it to be useful you like things, well that's useful because you get what you want you dislike things, that's useful because it it gets rid of the things that you don't want but that's the wrong path you know? the other path sounds attractive wow, wouldn't it be great, a lot of people say I wish I had time to meditate sounds great, wonderful, this idea of being peaceful and concentrated, focused sounds wonderful These are the two paths. So as meditators, it's important to be clear about this. And uh, it's good for us to think about because it helps us verify our practice and direct our practice. So that we can be this cowherd tapping our cows back in line and eventually training our mind to to stop wandering, to stop straying into likes and dislikes and trouble, to stop getting into other people's crops. Alright, so hopefully that was inspiring, enlightening, informative. Thank you all for tuning in. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Have a good night.